is God? God is holy, God is sovereign, God is good, God is patient, God is just, God is true, God is omniscient. But today's, there was a group of students here earlier this week and I wrote the name of God that we're talking about today on their board and none of them figured out what it was. That's all right, it was in Hebrew and they didn't even know they were supposed to read it right to left. I didn't really think they'd get it. But it's Yahweh Kane. God is jealous. That just seems wrong. It seems backwards. It seems, it seems like it's not something God should be. But we're going to make an even bolder statement and say this. If God were not jealous, he could not be good. If God were not jealous, he could not be loving. If God were not jealous, he could not be gracious and merciful. Half of you are looking at me like you have no idea why they hired me. The other half of you are looking at me like they're right. How can God be jealous? How can we stand here and make that sort of assertion that God is jealous? It's because he says he is. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 5. The second half of it. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus chapter 34. In verse 14, not only is he a jealous God, he says, I, for the Lord, or you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. There we go. God is jealous. Does that assuage the feelings that jealousy is not something God should be? And the answer is No. And it shouldn't. Now, we know that God is telling us that he is jealous, but that shouldn't just automatically take away the concern or confusion about jealousy. Why is that? Because I read half of one verse. Twice. And when we take little segments of statements from the scriptures and say, now we're going to build our theology or our statement on this half a phrase, our phrasing and our, our answer might be correct, but it's not very robust. It doesn't understand why it's correct. So let's step back again and not just make the statement that God is jealous, but look at these passages to see why God is jealous. And when we understand why God is jealous, we can understand why we are told not to be jealous, but he should be jealous. Exodus chapter 20 Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, uh, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Well, okay, now the jealousy of God has been given a reason, not just that God is jealous like Brock would be jealous. Exodus chapter 34, verses 11 to 14. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, the, the Hivites and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you will go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. What is God jealous about? Both of those passages tell us effectively the same thing. If you're not familiar with all the words in that second passage, especially that last one there, Asherim, that was like a, Imagine like a totem pole that they would worship and bow down to. They would pray to for whatever it is that they were looking for. Deuteronomy chapter 34, or 32 rather, is really going to outline this even more fully for us. So the first one, God says, don't make an image that you'd bow down to. The second one says, don't get connected with people who are going to lead you to a place where you'd be worshiping anything other than me. And now we come to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Verses 15 to 18. But Jeshurun, which is like a fancy way of, of saying Jerusalem or, or the Jewish people. It's a relational term for the Jewish people. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God and then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently when your fathers, whom your fathers had never dreaded, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. All three passages. Why was God jealous? Because his people decided that something was of more value than him. And then God's jealousy burned toward his people. No, it actually burned for his people. And that's where the jealousy of God and the jealousy of Brock diverge. 
because I am typically jealous of other people, not for other people. And in this case, God is saying, I am jealous for you, my people, my children, my bride in Christ, that you not go anywhere of less value than me because everything else is worthless. And then when I see your hearts turn towards something else, I am jealous for you because why? Because I have made you my people. Brock is jealous that somebody can hit a golf ball better than him. I'm jealous that somebody has a nicer car, a nicer house, uh, something. They have more fame, more power, more position. I am jealous of those things. See how those are totally different? God's jealousy is most akin to a spouse saying of their spouse, nobody else gets you. When? Ever. You're mine. Not in a possessive bad way, but nobody else gets you. Because God is jealous for his people who are rightfully his. I am jealous of things that other people have that were never mine to begin with. So God is jealous. And that is a comforting thing. Because God cares enough about us to care that we don't turn away. If he didn't care, if he wasn't jealous, there's no way he could be good. If he didn't care, if he wasn't jealous for his people, he could not actually be loving because he would just say, yeah, if Brock wants to leave, that's okay, I don't care. No, deep inside him, something burns to say, you cannot go anywhere else. And when you do, I will still take you back. And then I will tell you, you cannot go anywhere else. And then when you do, I'll take you back. So what has God done to make it so that that is a right place for him to be, a right position for him to hold? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He adopted us. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, remember, we were dead in our sins, dead as we lived on earth. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, his grace, you've been saved. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Not only did he adopt us and make us alive, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it to the praise of his glory. Not only did he adopt us, not only did he make us alive, he sealed us to guarantee that we stay that way. Verse 
Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34. Really, we can look at verses 31 to 39 or all of chapter 8, but we don't have time to do all of that. Verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is there to condemn? Now, you have to understand the wording and the grammar correctly because the answer to who is there to condemn is not Jesus Christ. It's a different statement. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and at the right hand of God is interceding for us. So who is there to condemn? Jesus died and came back to life and his, he is interceding on our behalf. So who can condemn us? No one. Nothing can ruin us. Nothing can end us. Nothing can be more powerful than Jesus himself. Hebrews 13.5 says that God will be with us forever. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. When we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So what has God done for us? He's adopted us. He's made us alive. He's guaranteed salvation. He's guaranteed that no matter what we do, he's still going to justify us. He's guaranteed that there's no one left to condemn us. He's guaranteed that he won't ever forsake us or deny us. Maybe he has a right to be jealous if we decide to go somewhere else. Maybe, maybe that's the only right response to his people who he's brought to himself in this way, who try to take themselves somewhere else to give themselves to something of less value than him. God's jealousy is not a bad thing. It's not a harsh thing. It's not a mean thing. It's a thing that says, you're trying to walk away and I'm not going to let you. But, but what of the people who do walk away? What of the people who sit in chairs with us on Sunday morning one week and the next year they're saying, I don't believe in Jesus, he wasn't even real? What of those people? First John Chapter 2, verse 19. This is not a main text for the morning, but it is an important concept. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. They being people who, who had forsaken the gospel of Jesus. They left us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Okay, what does that mean? It means that people had forsaken the gospel of Christ, which they claimed to have believed. They had forsaken that and walked away from it, proving that what? They never believed it for real in the first place. 
Because if they had, John says, they would have continued with us. But they didn't continue with us so that it would be plain to everybody that they were never actually part of our team. They were never actually redeemed, sealed by Jesus. As I said, that's not a main point for the morning. But as we look at this God who doesn't let his children walk away, doesn't doesn't not care about his children trying to turn to other things, we will see other people who do, or we will see people who do. And when we see those people say, I never really believed that to begin with, then they're probably right. They probably never really believed that to begin with. It's a new fad in Christianity, in Christianity, in the Christian world to deconstruct your faith. You see something that, that makes you say, oh man, those Christian people, they're really messed up. So I guess I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I know that sounds simplistic and foolish, but that's pretty much what goes on. When we see that, I am not, I am not condemning those people. Understand that. That's not my role. But the Bible does say they left us because they weren't actually part of us. But for us who believe, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we looked at it last week. We'll look at it again. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. Not only does God promise that when we, when we are actually his, that he'll bring us to completion, but he's patient with us in the process. All of that sounds well and good. What are we supposed to do with it? I asked Julie to find songs about God's jealousy. Well, I didn't actually ask her those words, but the title of today's message was God is Jealous, and then she was supposed to go find songs. I'm pretty sure she went to her file and typed in jealousy and came up with nothing. Right? So what do we do with this jealousy of God? We understand something particularly important. Do you remember the first sermon that I gave here as the pastor or a pastor at Bethel? It was on the purpose of preaching. There's only one purpose in preaching. Do you remember what it was? Jesus. And if there's anything else that we're pointing to, we've missed the purpose We've missed the reasoning. And so now we're going to step back and we're going to say, okay, if God is jealous because he says he's got something better for us than we could get for ourselves because of who he is and what he's done, not just for us, but in us and around us and in the world, then what is that? Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Julie read 16 and 17 a little bit ago. So we're going to read 16, 17, and 18. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. That in everything, Jesus might be the most important. He might be the highest lauded. He could be the focal point all the time. And when we understand who Jesus is, then our hearts turn not to good things, not to right behaviors, but to Jesus. And we find that he is sufficient for everything that we need. Not in the sense that we're going to have enough to drink because, you know, we trust Jesus. Although we do. Not just because we're going to have enough food because we trust Jesus. Trusting Jesus doesn't guarantee that you're going to score well on your tests, students. Right? That is not what we're meaning. When we talk about him being sufficient for all things, well, let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And that's where we're going to start. Where is Jesus sufficient in all things, it says? All things. So we're going to look through a couple things. There are a couple passages to say where Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for salvation. John chapter 14, verse 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4, 12. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Not only does he give us life, he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that can be poured out is poured out through Jesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Which actually will take us into our next sermon series. So, so when this series ends, we're going to hit a little bit of a jumble for a little while. We're going to do Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we will do every year that I'm here, the first Sunday of the year. Then we've got a couple guest speakers coming in, and then we're going to begin the process of jumping into spiritual gifting. What is it? Why do we have it? What do we do with it? Well, that's part of the spiritual blessings that Jesus pours out on us. So here we've got Jesus, the preeminent one, the one who is sufficient for everything, all of the things that we're doing for godliness, which includes salvation. It includes the spiritual gifting Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. And now in Jesus, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So not only has Jesus given us eternal life in salvation, spiritual blessings and gifts, but a guarantee of no condemnation. Now we don't have to walk as slaves to sin because we're made free in Christ. So what do we do with it? I still haven't answered the question. Seemed like a good question when I answered it. And then we went to what felt like something else. We really didn't go to something else. But we needed to know that the only thing we need is Jesus. Jesus. 
That sounds wrong. I needed to be reminded that the only thing I needed was Jesus. As a body, we also need to be reminded that the only thing that we need is Jesus. And when we see him as our sufficiency in all things, what do we do? We realize that we need Jesus, not stuff. We need Jesus, not power, not fame, not money, not emotions. Now, we're going to come to that, so don't totally misread that. And we don't need experience, though we get it. So the emotions and experience are weird ones because, because we have emotions and we have experiences, but Jesus is greater than our emotions, rendering our, motion, our emotions, I don't quite want to say irrelevant, but I just did, so I must have wanted to, really close to irrelevant as we pursue him because we pursue Christ, not the way we feel about Christ in a moment. We pursue Christ, not the experience that we have in, around, or about Jesus. But we pursue him. So we're going to look at a couple passages that tell us what it means for us to pursue Jesus in that way because he is the preeminent one, the only one worthy of all of this. And if we don't follow him in these ways, we rightly incur God's jealousy, not so that he can smite us, but so that he can bring us back to him. And we have to understand, as we talked about last week, God is patient. So sometimes we have to let these things cook. Mm -hmm. They made a deal that I wouldn't say the word cook this morning. And I did. But sometimes these things just have to sit and build in us for a while. Because if we hear what we're about to look at and we say that if we're not perfect by tomorrow, then I guess it's all done. If we say we're going to look at these things and if you're not perfect by tomorrow, then you're done, then we have misappropriated God's patience and his jealousy. He is the one who's jealous. I'm not supposed to be jealous in his place. He's jealous. And he's patient with us right? Patient for us to start, patient for us to do the work he's called us to, and patient to become like him. So now let's look at these different passages that tell us what we are supposed to do. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where, friends, your treasure is, there your heart, your desire, your mind, your passions will be as well. That might be tough. But don't worry, they get harder. So we're not supposed to have our heart bent towards stuff. It's supposed to be bent toward Jesus, who's more valuable than your stuff. Which stuff? All your stuff. All your stuff together. Well, if, we, if we skipped a couple verses, a couple weird verses in there, you can read it. We'll talk about it later. Different passage, different topic, different time. Come to verse 24. No one can serve two masters. 
You'll either be devoted to one or love one and hate the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and something. Some versions say money. Some say money with a capital M. Some say mammon. Mammon is a transliteration of the Greek word. So they use the letters M-A-M-M-O-N, only the, the Greek ones. And we just translate them into the English letters because we don't exactly know what this mammon thing is. Really what it, what it most easily understands as is anything you could try to get your hands on. Now you can get your hands on stuff physically, right? But has, has anybody here ever seen somebody pursue attaining power in their life? Make that their goal? Uh, how about fame? Position? Respect? We see people chase that all the time. Sometimes we find ourselves chasing that altogether too frequently. But you cannot serve God and chase those things at the same time is what Jesus says. So not, now not only is he saying your stuff isn't as good as Jesus, but he's saying anything at all that you can try to attain on this earth, not as good as Jesus. And if you try to, God will be jealous for you to not let you throw yourself away at the altar of something worthless comparatively. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, one of the great misused passages in the scripture. Money is the root of all evil. It's like somebody took an X-Acto knife and just cut some of the words out. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, that's different. It's not that money itself is bad. Money is either a concept like a credit card or a physical object like a bill or a piece of gold. None of those are inherently good or bad, but loving those things is because it puts your treasure here. Not there. Now we come to the two that I said we had to come back to, and we're out of time, so I guess we're going to just skip those. Totally joking. Emotions. I have met many a person who pursues emotions and an emotional experience or an emotional feeling toward Jesus more than they pursue Jesus. 1 Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 is about those who would be overseers, and it's part of the disqualifications passage about elders. And in case that sounds weird, you've probably not heard it refer, uh, referred to that as often, but there is a particular qualification for all leaders, particularly elders within the church, that they would be spirit-minded or spirit-filled and wise, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, and then Paul gives lists of things that says, if you don't look like these, then you can't be full of the spirit and full of wisdom. And one of those is that elders are to be sober-minded, which means not driven by their emotions or emotional passions. That doesn't mean don't have emotions. I remember I was in a conversation with my dad one time and his pastor at the time and J.O. said, Dan, you're a Vulcan. 
If you're not familiar with Star Trek, Vulcans have no emotions. They're not allowed to. And he said, Dan, you're like a Vulcan. You just have no emotions. To which my dad said, well, thank you very much. Most of us, not that way. We have emotions. So does my dad. So don't totally mishear that. He's got at least one, maybe two. We have emotions, and we should have emotions. God gave us emotions to have, but not to pursue. Then sometimes we pursue experiences instead of Jesus. John chapter 6 is a perfect example of that. In verses 35 to 37, it's really a longer, it's really 25 to 37, but 25 to 34 goes like this. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with like a happy meal, right? And then he leaves and they chase him down and they're like, oh, Jesus, you're so cool. We want to follow you some more. Please give us lunch. And John chapter 6, verse 35 Starts like this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They came to Jesus, to the right place, pursuing an experience to get something from him that they'd already gotten. They'd already had this incredible sign from Jesus that he was legit. 5,000 people with one person's lunch, they all saw it. There was no way to fake it. So then they came to him again looking for what? An experience so that they would enjoy it. And he says, you're chasing food. I'm right here. And you won't chase me. As Christ's people, we must not pursue anything less than Jesus, which is everything else. And when we pursue Jesus, he'll give us what we need. He'll give us what we should have. The author of Hebrews says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised his shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Everything else gets set aside and we pursue Jesus as individuals, as family units, as a family unit. We pursue Jesus and nothing else because if we don't, then God will look at us and say, I am jealous for you because you are handing yourself to something that is worthless compared to me. Because God is loving, because God is good, because God is holy, who is God? God is jealous. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for allowing us to know you, to follow you. Lord, we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. But you offer yourself to us freely. And we ask, Father, that you would cause us as your people 
people to set aside everything that is not you and pursue you wholly. God, I fail at this. We don't need your forgiveness. You've already given it to us in Jesus. But Lord, I need you to continue to work in my heart so that I pursue you, so that we pursue you as individuals. Thank you for not ever letting us go. We do love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.